When Carla and I had been dating for a little while, I remember the first time I brought her home to meet my parents. I was so excited because these people who meant so much to me were finally going to meet each other. That's a little bit how I feel this weekend because you all get to meet Gene Apple. He is our guest speaker this weekend and he is a dear friend to me. And I'm just excited that he gets to kind of meet you, my dear Mountain family and have that friendship come together. Gene's family and my family go way back. I, I have a hard time even describing the deep friendship that our, our families have had through the, through the years. My grandfather and, and Gene's dad and his mother and my parents, and uh, they've all been close friends and partners in ministry. And so I grew up knowing Gene and his family. That's one reason why Gene and I both grew up spending our summers on the shores of Long Lake at the cabin in northern Minnesota. You've heard me talk about that place so many times, but Gene has all those same stories as well. Back in those days, we had no idea that God would call both of us into ministry, and I certainly had no way of knowing that Gene would become one of the most widely respected Christian leaders in the country and one of the most powerful communicators anywhere. Gene is pastored at two of our country's largest churches, Central Christian Church in Las Vegas, Nevada, and Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois. And then in 2008, he began his current ministry with Eastside Christian Church in Southern California. And it quickly became one of the fastest growing churches in the nation. They just relocated to a new campus in Anaheim and they are blowing it up, reaching people far from God and leading the way in so many ways. Most of the time when I see Gene, it's during summer vacation out on the water since their cabin is just across the way. I see him on his dock or as he's going out fishing or on a jet ski or something. But this weekend, uh, Gene came all the way out east to be a main speaker at the Eastern Christian Conference in Hershey. And that's where I am and why I'm not able to be with you this weekend. Gene spoke there Friday and Saturday and then agreed to stick around and share with us at Mountain this weekend. And I could not be more tickled about that. It gives me a chance to introduce you all. So, Gene, Mountain. And Mountain, give it up with a warm mountain welcome for my friend Gene Apple. Well, hey, Mountain. Thank you. Uh, you have no idea how thrilled I am to be here this weekend and to be with all three of your campuses and celebrate with you what God is doing. And uh, as Ben said, we've known each other all of our lives. And so if anybody knows dirt on Ben, it's me, okay? <laughs> and, uh, but I'm telling you, and I, I wish I had some. He's like as great a guy as you think he is. And uh, now Carla, on the other hand, I mean, she's a little... But, uh, <laughs> No, we love uh, Ben and Carla and uh, their three kids, and, and uh, it is so fun to be at Mountain, and uh, this is such a... Do you know how amazing your church is? Do you realize the magnitude of the miracle of what God is doing in this church? Don't ever take that for granted. And uh, you do know you do have one of the great pastors in America, don't you, right here? And uh, you really do. He's, he's a gift from God. And I'm thankful for him. So greetings from Anaheim, California, the home of Mickey Mouse and the most expensive, I mean, happiest place on earth. And uh, if you get out our way, uh, come see us. And I know some of you right now, you're like, you're like, your ears are doing funny things and you're thinking, Gene, is that your real voice? Do you really sound that way? And, uh, you know, I told your audio team, you know, I'd give them a hundred bucks if they could make me sound like Barry White, you know, this weekend kind of, Jesus loves you, baby. Something like that. 
but instead, when God was giving out voices, I got one that sounds like I've been inhaling helium for four days. So it's just what you got. Hey, I want to start this weekend, and I'm so thrilled to be here to, to, to work through the next chapter of the story with you in chapter 9. I want to start with a show of hands on something. At all the campuses, how many of you have some movies that you like to see more than once? You, you know, it, it'd be a movie that you'd see again and again, maybe yeah, a number of you. I'm that way. There are some movies. For instance, I could see Jason Bourne in the Bourne Trilogy over and over again. I, I've probably seen it on TV, uh, I don't know, 30 times. Those things come on. I'm just like a sucker for them. Now, my wife Barbara, on the other hand, uh, she really has no interest in seeing a movie more than once. She's kind of a one-and-done person. Uh, other than there is one exception. And she has seen this movie multiple times in the movie theater. I'll bet she's seen it, you know, 25, 30, 40 times on TV whenever they're replaying on it. And it's... Pride and Prejudice with Kira Knightley where she falls in love with Mr. Darcy. And so if you were here for the story last week uh, in chapter 8, you were kind of here for like the Bourne Trilogy through, through, through the judges, okay? And you're like, what Bible is that? This is the West Coast edition of the story right here. And uh, you were here for the, 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 the judges, and, and, and if you're like me, that was your kind of chapter. It's kind of a Bourne Trilogy movie, and there was blood and war and swords and sex and all that kind of stuff. But chapter 9 is for those of you who are kind of pride and prejudice kind of people. And uh, if you've read it, you know that. Now to set it up for you, I want to show you a video that I guarantee you almost every parent in the room has experienced at least once. Take a look. I wonder what it's going to be. Okay, how many parents have had that scene at their house? Yeah, yeah, I want a toy, I want a toy. I heard somebody say one time that grandchildren are God's gift for not killing your own children. <laughs> and uh, now as adults, we still get a bit disappointed and we still have, you know, things that disappoint us, but, but we're better at disguising it than children are. And for many people, their disappointment has come in the form of their marital and relationship status. Some people find it awkward to be single in a culture that's often built for two. And if you don't believe our culture is built for two, let me ask you, when was the last time you ever heard of someone winning an all-expense-paid trip for one? Doesn't happen, right? Living as a single person in a world built for two often makes you feel like a square peg in a round hole or something. And some people can't help but ask in this society built for two, is there something wrong 
with me? Am I missing out on God's best for me? Is it really okay to be single? Is it really okay to be unmarried? And I want to remind you of something. The only perfect person to ever live in the history of the world, Jesus Christ, was single himself. So I not only assume that it's okay to be single, I also assume that the single life can be as completely rewarding as married life, just in a very unique and different way. Now friends, this is a significant topic for all of us this weekend, even if you're married, because here's something really profound that I I discovered in my research getting ready for this. Are you ready for this? 100% of us have lived a good portion of our life single. 100% of us. Now think about that. Not all of us will be married in our life, but all of us will live a significant portion of our life uh, single, unmarried. All of us will do that. Many of us who are not single now will be single again one day because of a death or because of a divorce. I know because it happened to me. And in the late 80s, I heard those words from my wife that I never expected to hear when she said, I'm involved and in love with another man. And I'm leaving in the morning. And she did. And despite relentless attempts at reconciliation, she never returned. And she married the guy. Believe me, I know the only way I'm standing here all these years later is by the amazing grace of our God. In 1993, I remarried a wonderful woman named Barbara who's with me this weekend and we have three fantastic children and she's meant the world to me and we just celebrated our 20th anniversary this last year. But, but God used those in-between years. Thank you. I've, God is good. God used those in-between years to teach me something about what it is to be an unmarried follower of Christ in our culture. And so today, I don't talk to you about this subject as a casual observer, but I talk to you as one who has walked in the shoes that many of you have walked in, one who has walked in the shoes that the main character, characters in our story of chapter 9 have walked through. Chapter 9 of the story begins on page 121 in your story Bibles, and it says, In the days when the judges ruled. So the book of Ruth takes place in the midst of that passage that you studied last weekend from chapter 8. And, 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 and there's a famine in the land as this chapter begins. And we don't know if it was a famine because of a judgment of God. We don't know if it just happened to be a famine. But a man named Elimelech, who lived in Canaan, the promised land, decided to move his family away from the promised land to the foreign pagan land of Moab. Elimelech's name meant God is my king. But he didn't really live up to his name. And instead of trusting in the one living God, he goes to Moab and he trusts in their food supply. Now, his wife's name was Naomi, and Naomi's name meant pleasant or sweet. And his sons had bizarre names. They had two sons. The sons' names were Malon and Killian, which literally meant sick and dying. Now, if you have two boys, don't name them that, okay? You know, it's like, here's my two boys, uh, bird flu and walking pneumonia, I'd love for you to meet. And the story unfolds that these two boys, they grow up and they fall in love with two Moabite women from Moab 
this foreign culture. And again, these are not believers in God. But by the time you get to the second paragraph of the end of chapter 9, tragedy strikes. Naomi's husband's die, husband dies. We're not told how. We don't know if he had a heart attack. We don't know if it was old age. We don't know if he got hit by a camel. We don't know what it was. And then about the same time, both of her adult age sons, sick and dying, died. Now that's a shock, right? <laughs> and so now you've got three widows. You've got Naomi, and you have her two daughters-in-law who are grieving, all sharing the Kleenex box with one another. Can you imagine the grief that Naomi was in, losing her husband and losing both of her sons about the same time? Shortly after my father died of a heart attack when I was 14 years old, my mom decided to have breakfast one morning out on our patio, and she gave my brother Greg the plates to go set the table for breakfast. And in a few moments, he came back in with an extra plate. She'd given him one too many plates. And she cried. That's hard. That's grief. You see, at this point, all three of these women are battling the challenges of living as a single adult. And that first challenge is loneliness. I'll never forget my first Christmas alone again. We'd had our uh, Christmas Eve services out in Las Vegas where I was serving at a church at the time. And, and uh, my, my intention was after the Christmas Eve services was to go grab something to eat at a drive through go home, do a little laundry and pack. And early on Christmas morning, I was going to take a flight back to the Midwest to spend Christmas Day with 20 members of my family. And I got away from the church late that night after the services and I was hungry. I hadn't had anything since the middle of the day. And so I drove just uh, down the street a little bit to a little chicken drive through place and and they were closed, so next door there was kind of a taco drive through place, and I went there, and they were closed. And so I drove a little ways away to Jack in the Box. I was really getting desperate. And uh, they were closed, and I thought, well, I'll go to my supermarket. The deli, you know, there, I'll get something to eat. My supermarket's open 24 hours a day. And my supermarket was closed. I had never seen Las Vegas, the city that never sleeps, so quiet. And it was an unusually cold and windy night in Las Vegas and I'm driving around feeling all sorry for myself, you know, and thinking about all the families having their little gatherings on Christmas Eve, you know, having this little, so I'm having this little pity party. But I was determined to get something to eat. So finally, I drove out to the east edge of Las Vegas where the, there's a country western themed casino called Samstown. And to my surprise, when I pulled up, the place was hopping. I mean, there were cars everywhere. And uh, I went in through the casino and watched the people playing the table games and the slot machines and the video poker machines. And I went up to the second story where there was a 50-style diner. And I sat down at a table for four all by myself and ordered the blue plate special. And I remember sitting there thinking, I can't believe it. I just spoke for thousands of people and here I am at Sam's Town on Christmas Eve eating meatloaf and mashed potatoes and gravy alone. And just when I thought it couldn't get any worse, somebody put a quarter in the jukebox and Elvis started singing in my ear, Are you lonesome tonight? Absolutely true. And uh, by the way, your, your sympathy is very touching to me. I, <laughs> and uh, I started laughing, pro probably to keep from crying. And the thought that just overwhelmed me was, Gene, here you are, one of the most blessed guys in the world. 
You have a church family that loves you. You have more close friends than should be legally allowed to have. You're flying home in the morning to spend Christmas Day with 20 members of your family. And if you of all people can be lonely tonight, imagine how difficult this night is for those who don't have anybody. And as I walked out of the casino that night, now watch all these people playing the you know, table games and slot machines and stuff. It was like the Holy Spirit just sent a dart right into my heart and said, Gene, look, they don't have anywhere else to go tonight either. Why else would you be here on Christmas Eve? Well, Naomi decided after her husband's death that she was going to move back to her homeland, back to Canaan, the promised land. She didn't have anything holding her down there and there was no welfare. There were no churches to help. She had no way to survive in Moab but her two daughters-in-law were so fond of her that they decided that they would move with her. And part of the way down the road Naomi tries to send them back. And basically she says, look, you girls don't need the baggage of a mother-in-law around you. You need a man so go back home and, and, and find another man. And one of them, Orpah, went back to Moab. Isn't that quite a name, Orpah? I tried to convince my wife, Barbara, we should name one of our daughters Orpah. I thought Orpah Apple had kind of a nice ring to it, but she didn't agree. And uh, so Orpah turned around and she went back home, but Ruth insisted on going with Naomi. And Ruth makes this statement on page 122 of the story. It's about two-thirds of the way down. And she says to Naomi, her mother-in-law, she says, Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now, I'll bet you've heard some of those words before. Where have you heard those words before? Anybody? At a wedding. Sometimes you'll hear those words at a wedding. And it's interesting. It's a nice statement for husbands and wives to make toward one another, but if we're really going to be accurate with the text, what should happen at a wedding, at that particular point that those words are said, the, the bride should turn to the mother of the groom and say, where you go, I will go. Ain't going to happen, is it? I have a prediction that that's going to be a tradition that won't catch on. You see, Ruth was already discovering the second challenge of being a single adult, and that's adventure. And I like this. This is a positive thing. Ruth saw her newfound singleness as an opportunity, an opportunity for adventure. Ruth was saying to Naomi, look, I don't have anything tying me down here in Moab. I think I'll go someplace new. I don't have any kids. I like to travel. Let's go. Ruth didn't lock herself in a room and she didn't wallow in self-pity. She began to search for a new adventure in her life. And that was risky. I remember when I found myself single again, a buddy and I decided that we were going to take a vacation to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. And three days later, we were there. We decided one day we were going to go. Three days later, we were there. Now, as a married guy, there's no way I could pull something like that off. There's no way I could go home today and say, honey, guess what? We're going to Puerto Vallarta in three days. I'd be single again, friends. I can tell you that right now. There are too many responsibilities, you know, when, you ha when you're married that are affected by that spirit of adventure. So Ruth and Naomi, they take this adventuresome trip to Naomi's hometown, and her hometown is 
Bethlehem. Hmm. There's the first clue in this story of why this story is so important to the upper story of the Bible and why it's there. Bethlehem is a town of less than 200 people. And so when Naomi returns, it's big news in this little town. People start to talk. Is that her? Doesn't look like her. Is that Naomi? Now remember, her name means pleasant or sweet. But Naomi says, look, don't call me that anymore because God has made my life bitter, not sweet. Down in the last paragraph of page 122, she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You see the expression on her face? Can't you see it when she says that? She's angry at God. Her eyes are sunken. She's mad at God because this was not how she thought the deal was supposed to go. I wanted a toy. I wanted a toy. I wanted a toy. This is not how it was supposed to go, God. And I wonder if that sounds familiar to some of you. You just reach that point where it feels like what you hoped for, that God's not going to deliver now and it hasn't worked out the way you thought it would. And so you read the story about Naomi and you think, well, this is really a story about loss. Naomi loses her home, loses her land, loses her husband, loses her two sons. It's a story about loss. But here's the question I want you to consider this weekend. Does the story have to be about loss? Does it have to be about that? She went through incredible pain and loss, but is that what the story has to be about? Gerald Sitzer was in a car accident, hit by a drunk driver in a minivan. And in that accident, he lost three generations. He lost his mother, he lost his wife, and he lost his daughter. And he wasn't even hurt. And he has a book where he's written about going through that journey. And I love the title of it. It's called, A Grace Disguised. And here's what he said. He says, the experience of loss does not need to be the defining moment of our story. Now, it's one thing for me to say that. It's something else for him to say that. He says, the defining moment can be our response to the loss. The story doesn't have to be about the loss. The story could be about our response to the loss. In other words, we don't get to decide what roles we're going to play in life, but we get to decide how we're going to play those roles. And so you reach this point in your own journey, you reach this point in your own life, your own story, where you have to decide, is this going to define me? Is this loss going to define me? Is that what my life is going to be all about? Or is my response to the loss going to define me? Could the story about be, be something different? Well, that's hard. And I think it was hard for Naomi not to just get caught up in the pain of her lower, lower story while God was writing this big upper story. We tend to get focused just on what's happening right in front of us, don't we? But we open the box, you know, and we find that there's a sweater inside instead of a toy, and there's just disappointment. But here's what we're going to see. The one word that describes Naomi's story is not loss, but it's redemption. 
Now once Ruth and Naomi arrived on this adventure back to Bethlehem, Ruth went into the fields to go to work to pick up grain that was left behind by the harvesters, the farmers. Now why did she do that? Because a third challenge of living as a single adult is kind of a cross between your career and finances. Ruth had to go to work. Nobody else was going to support her. And she was determined to provide for her financial needs and for her mother-in-law. And so she went to work picking up the leftover grain in the harvest field because there was a law in Israel that poor people could collect the grain on the edges of the field. It was kind of their welfare system of Israel. Now that wasn't a very glamorous or lucrative job. Today it would be like somebody who walks along the highway or something and picks up aluminum cans for a living. But you have to respect Ruth for starting somewhere. And it was while she was on that job in the field that Ruth experienced the fourth challenge of living as a single adult, and that was dating. For some of you who are single, dating is a natural part of your life. For some of you who find yourself single again, it's very awkward for you. I'll never forget the first date I had after finding myself single again. It had been a long time since I had been on a date, and I was really nervous about it. And I wasn't nervous about what I would do or what I would say. I was nervous about the fact that I was the pastor of a large church, and I was worried about being in public and having people see me and go, Oh, look, there's Gene. He's with a girl. And so I made arrangements with this gal. We were going out a date to go to a movie uh, late on a Friday afternoon. I told her that it would work better with my schedule, but really I'm cheap and movies are half price in the afternoon. And so we were able to make that work. So we got in uh, from the parking lot unscathed, made our way through the lobby, got down to the theater, walked in, and I saw, saw a row that was completely empty except for one guy just on the end of it. I said, oh, let's go down there. So we go down. She starts in the row and she's right in front of the guy. And then I get right in front of him and while I'm right here, just right in front of him, in a big loud voice, he goes, Hey, preacher! And I turned like ten shades of red. I don't know. what I think I said, this is my sister or something. I, I don't know. It was a very awkward moment. Well, it was there working in the field that Ruth encounters another single main character in this story. And his name is Boaz. Boaz had never married, just like some of you. Some have never married because they're disillusioned by people that they're dated. Some have never married because they've dis been disillusioned by the relationship of their parents. Some desperately want to be married, but the right opportunity has never come along and it's frustrating. It's like the widow who was crying over a container of ashes one day, just sobbing. She said, oh, he was my fourth husband. And an elderly lady who had never been married overheard her and said, she's got husbands to burn and I can't even find one. Now the fact of the matter is many people have never married because like Boaz, they've chosen to remain unmarried. Some for a season of their life, some for a lifetime. The New Testament even talks about how there is a gift of singleness to remain unmarried. So Ruth goes to work in this field. And on page 123 in the story, uh, kind of the third paragraph there towards the top of the page, it says, So she went out, entered the field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. As it turned out, wouldn't you know, and this is my favorite verse in the whole story right here, as it turns out, go figure, just so happened, what a coincidence, 
The story just unfolds that coincidentally she ends up in Boaz's field, a wealthy single guy who unbeknownst to Ruth was a relative of her late husband. Now to make a long story short, Boaz befriended Ruth and really liked her and when her mother-in-law found out what was going on, she played Cupid and here's what she said to Ruth. She said, now, now Ruth, I know where Boaz will be tonight so here's what I want you to do. She said, you wash, you make yourself look, you know, your best, you put on your prettiest dress and look nice and then I want you to the, go to the barn where he is working and after he eats, he's going to lie down and he's going to go to sleep and you go lie down at his feet. And he will tell you what to do from there. You say, what is she telling her to do? It's not what you think she's telling her to do. Uh, actually, I mean, this is the furthest thing from a hookup, okay? This was actually, uh, this was a proposal. Naomi was telling her to prepare herself as a bride and to announce to Boaz that she was interested and available and willing to relocate. She's actually a very liberated woman. Now, listen as I read what happened next. This is as it's paraphrased in the Living Bible. It says, Suddenly, around midnight, Boaz wakened and sat up startled. There was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He demanded. You know, it's dark. He's trying to wipe the sleep out of his eyes and he can't see. Who are you? He demanded. It's I, sir, Ruth, she replied. Make me your wife according to God's law, for you are my close relative. Thank God for a girl like you, he exclaimed. <laughs> I guess so. Now don't worry about a thing, my child. I'll handle all the details for everyone knows what a wonderful person you are. Isn't that a great story? It reminds me of the woman whose husband died and she was so distraught and disturbed. She had inscribed on his tombstone, the light of my life has gone out. But five years later, she fell in love with another guy. She got married and she didn't know what to do about the tombstone. And so she finally went back and had engraved underneath it, but I struck a new match. <laughs> now, I think this is such a practical story and it has such a practical application, not just for single people, but for all of us. Boaz is what is called throughout this story, he's called the guardian redeemer. Now let me explain the guardian-redeemer law to you. When a man fell into hard times in that day and was forced to sell his land, his nearest relative or his guardian-redeemer was able to step in and buy the land, purchase it, so it stayed within the family name, so it stayed within the family trust. It didn't go to someone outside the tribe. Now I know that sounds weird, but that's how the laws were set up in that land. So Boaz comes along and says, I will buy the land, the property of Elimelech, and then I will take responsibility for Ruth. And it's just no small act of sacrificing kindness here, especially when you consider Ruth is a Moabite. She's from a pagan culture. She's a foreigner. And the men in, in, in the promised land, they would have nothing to do with a woman like that. But actually, there was a closer relative than Boaz who would have the right of first refusal of this deal. So Boaz goes to the guy, I mean, this is classic, he sets it all up, who has the right of first refusal on the land and the family, and he says, there's this land and you can redeem it if you want to. He goes, oh, and one more thing. The day you buy the land, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, that foreigner, you know, from the pagan land, and you also get the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name on the deed with the property. Now, is that great? It's like if you go to buy a house and you wonder why it's so cheap and the realtor tells you, well, there's a mother-in-law upstairs and she stays with the house. 
and she likes people to call her bitter, I'm sure you're going to enjoy her. <laughs> and at that point, this other relative says, I'm out, you can have her, okay? Now, on page 127, third paragraph, beautiful moment. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. What a beautiful story. It's an amazing thing that Boaz has done. He had no legal obligation to do this. It was just pure grace. And what does Boaz get out of the deal? An awesome wife. What kind of man was Boaz before this story happened? Ruthless. Oh, come on, that's funny. That's the only thing you're going to remember this whole sermon, I know. Boaz comes along and says, I will take the property, I will take responsibility. He goes out of his way to redeem this foreign woman. And as it turns out, you, if you've been following through the story, you know who the mother of Boaz is. Remember a few weeks ago, a prostitute in Jericho who helped the Israelite spies when they were coming to spy out the promised land? Her name was Rahab. And as it turns out, Rahab had a son. And as it turns out, his name was Boaz. And Boaz grew up to be a man who honored God. And perhaps because his own mother was from a foreign culture and land and had changed from the pagan God to the God of Israel, he was able to show Ruth comfort and generosity and grace and protection. It was as if a Christmas present was opened. And you know, it looked really dumb when they first opened it on the outside. But then when they got down and looked on the inside, it was better than they could ever have imagined. Now here's what I'm saying to you this weekend. If you open your package and you know it looks really good on the outside, you think it's what you wanted and it's about the right size and the right weight and, and then you just open it up and you say, oh gosh, I think this is what, I think it's what I wanted. I, I'm sure I just, you know, got it. And then you look at it and you realize, like, oh no. Illness. Loss. Abuse. Pain, adultery, infertility, divorce, tough finances, widowed, death, loneliness, hurt. And you think, I wanted a toy. I wanted a toy. That's not how this story is supposed to end. But you see, sometimes you've got to look a little deeper. And you've got to look inside the box. I mean, this does not have to be your story. This does not have to be how your story ends. And what I'm saying is, before you stomp out of the room and you say, God, I can't take any more of that, you've got to open the box. Because when Ruth and Naomi opened the box, you know what happened? Ruth became pregnant and Naomi got a grandson. And that grandson led to a future and a hope for them. And he was a great blessing that brought salvation for Ruth and Naomi and their future. In fact, 
The final picture we have of Naomi in this book is holding her grandchild. And it closes with these important words. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. The father of David. Is this an awesome story or what? I mean, Ruth's great-grandson was King David. Because you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometime, (laughs) you might just find you get what you need. This is the family tree. I want you to see it. Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, has a son named Boaz who marries a foreign Moabite woman named Ruth who has a son named Obed who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David. And then eventually we get to the Christmas story in Bethlehem. Why did Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem? Why did they travel there for the census? Because that's where their ancestry was born. And what they couldn't see at the time, what Ruth and Naomi and Boaz couldn't see at the time, is way down inside the box was Jesus. And He was coming. And He was coming through their family line. And He was coming to save the world. Is that an awesome story or what? Now, if you're listening to me today and you've unwrapped the box and you're looking at it and you say, I don't like what it says, and from your perspective, you can't see what's down inside yet. You can't see what God has in the future yet. And your story doesn't have to be about loss. Your story can be about the response to the loss. And I would encourage you as hard as it is for some of you to say who are in pain right now, who are in loss right now, to pray to God the words that Ruth said to her mother-in-law and say, God, where you go, I will go. I will follow you. You will be my God and commit yourself to being the person that says, I'm going to trust you even when I can't see what's down in the box yet. I admire Ruth and Naomi and Boaz because they show us how to live successfully as a single adult. Boaz, who was single most of his adult life, eventually married a wonderful woman. Ruth, who was married and saw that marriage cut short when she was young, eventually got a second chance at marriage. And Naomi got through her bitterness and hurt, and she remained single the rest of her life. But she experienced joy and contentment and fulfillment and happiness. And the good news is, you can too. Through Jesus Christ, you can too. That's why we all need Jesus Christ to be our guardian. Redeemer. Friends, as one who has walked alone, I can tell you that when Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, he meant it. Now, you tell me what friend, what spouse, what boyfriend, what girlfriend can say that to you and meet the deepest need at the deepest part of your soul. 
You've got to have a relationship with Jesus Christ to know what it is to have real contentment. He's the one who can give you what no fulfillment of a human relationship can give. He's the one who helps us start over. He's the one who comforts the brokenhearted. And He's the one who knows that loss does not have to be the definition because He took the greatest loss in the world of the cross and He turned it to the greatest victory when you look down inside the tomb is empty. Let's bow our heads together. Well, God, I thank You for this amazing story that we're unpacking and what we're learning about how You've worked in history to restore the relationship with broken people like us. I pray for every person in this room today who feels like loss is defining their story. And I thank You that it doesn't have to. But because of our guardian redeemer, Jesus Christ, because of the One who saves us, our response to Him and to the loss can be the story. God, thank You that we never walk alone. That You are always with us. And we lift our our prayers in the name of the guardian redeemer, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen.